0: Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick.
1: Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy.
0: I'm Lexi Grant. I'm a media entrepreneur, and right now I'm building a brand called They Got Acquired, where we help business owners who want to sell their business.
1: Awesome. I am so excited to have you on, you, Lexi, on the Remote Work Drive podcast. Uh, they Got Acquired is literally one of my favorite newsletters. And yeah, so just to dive right into it, what was the idea behind launching this newsletter and media brand?
0: Yeah, well, when I was looking for my next idea, I was exploring a lot of pain points that were pain points for me personally. <laughs> and I went through two of these exits myself. I sold two different content companies throughout my career. And both times I felt like, I didn't have enough resources. I didn't really know who was out there to help me with for a sale of my size. You know, I wanted more support and I couldn't find it. And so that's the pain point that that we're solving now. I really set out to to provide what I had wanted myself.
1: Awesome. I love it. I feel like some of the best companies out there are literally people who just went ahead and dived in and solved a pain point that they actually had themselves. I feel like, shifting gears a little bit, the first time I may have if I can encounter you was through one of your other brands I think it might have been the right life at the time mm-hmm. um knowing what you know today how has your approach with they got acquired and building out this company been different from other media brands that you started in the past
0: mm-hmm. I think going into it I just felt a little bit more confident that I kind of knew what the initial steps would be to build the brand But every single brand is different and every single business is different. And there's been unique challenges with this experience that I didn't have with other brands. So I think the biggest part is just like trusting myself that I'll figure it out. You know, knowing there's going to be things that I don't know, but I will figure it out along the way. A few things that I've done differently. Well, I've spent more money on design with this brand from the beginning, which I I didn't do earlier in my career. And partly because it's costly, but I've really been convinced in the last five to ten years that design is more important than I I I used to think it was all about the content and the words and the concepts that you're sharing. But now I know that to get people to take my brand seriously to gain that credibility, it helps to have a brand that is visually appealing and looks professional. It's I kind of try to find that middle point between it doesn't have to be perfect, (laughs) especially in the beginning when you're kind of testing out a new idea but I do want it to look professional enough that people take us seriously from the beginning. So that's that's one specific thing that I've done differently.
1: Following on to that, I feel like there can definitely be a trap where with design in particular, it's, you almost can over-engineer it to the point where it's like you're chasing perfection. Do you have any approaches for how you know when the design is good enough to launch versus not getting in the habit of like maybe not shipping as regularly as you could because the design isn't 100%
0: yeah. I mean, I think with with everything it's never as good as I want it to be and it's it's really never perfect. So getting used to the idea that I'm going to be putting something out there that isn't perfect but hopefully it is good enough. Um what's good enough? I don't know. That that's a hard marker to 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 kind of really put a pin in. I think in my brain it's usually like getting there 80% of the way. Like kind of the 80-20 idea is have you hit most of the goals that are really going to make a meaningful difference? Um towards your results.
1: What are those goals when it comes to design for you?
0: Well, I am not a designer, so (laughs) um, I get a lot of support. I have a really great um, designer that I work with. But yeah, my, my goals are basically, it's basically about around building trust and credibility. So how can we put a layer of aesthetics on top of the content that lets people know that we're serious, you can trust us, we know what we're doing, kind of relays that idea of yeah, of credibility.
1: I like it. Um, And you are one of the, one of the things I kind of respect a lot is just how prolific you are when it comes to producing new content. Um, While Thanks. still keeping the quality bar so incredibly high, what are some of the things that you think about when it comes to content quality and maintaining, you know, r- rhythm and being so consistent without letting that quality suffer or, you know, burnout sitting in?
0: Well, I am a writer. Like, that's my core skill set is writing and editing. So, I think it comes easier to me than someone who maybe doesn't have that skill set and wants to be sharing ideas online. Like, I love writing. Writing is where I feel most comfortable. You know, like, I don't love doing video interviews and even podcast interviews make me a little bit nervous, but writing I feel really comfortable with. And so, I just lean into that and use that as my vehicle for sharing what we're up to. And also I just, I love writing. So like, I kind of think about, Hey, there are things I'd be writing anyway (laughs) to help me process what I'm, what I'm building, the decisions I'm making, and how can I write that in a way that can be helpful to other people as well and not just myself. So it really, a lot of it is it's self-serving because doing the writing helps me figure out the direction we're moving in. It helps me find clarity And then if it can help other people too, that to me, that's a bonus, but I do, I do try to be consistent. And like, you know, one thing I kind of come in and out of doing is creating content in batches. So for example, you know, this month I'm focusing on a specific project and I wanted to open space for that project. So at the beginning of the month, uh, I gave myself a day to write content for the internet, (laughs) for the, for social, basically for LinkedIn and also Twitter and then I use, I reuse, I reuse some of that stuff in our, in our newsletter too, because um, our, so our newsletter, they got acquired on Tuesdays. We send it twice a week. And on Tuesdays, I include a, a piece that's called behind the business where I talk about like how we're building what we're building and what I'm thinking about and what our process is like. So I'm able to use the content that I create in all three of those places. And it has to be a little bit different format for each spot, but I come up with an idea and usually I write it for Twitter first. And then i'll turn it into a linkedin version and also if it's going to go in the newsletter i'll turn it into a newsletter version and at the beginning of the month i spent a day just doing that and i scheduled out for the whole month um because i I can see that a lot of the newsletter subscribers we're getting are from linkedin specifically but also some on twitter so i want i do want to keep up that consistency but i don't want it to be something that interrupts me every day like if i feel inspired and i want to write about something um if i can make the time in my schedule i usually allow myself to because i know there's going to be a um, good result from that um but now that i've done it for this month for example things go live and i don't have to think about it and i'll come back to it when that queue is empty so that that's something that works for me if i'm in the mood to to do to have one of those days where i can pump out
1: a lot of stuff i love it i have so many follow up questions to what you just shared similar to you i'm also a writer first and foremost and also do a lot of my own writing in batches, how do you, when you sit down for that one day a month or that one day every couple of weeks to create that, that next batch of social media content and newsletter content, do you already have like a list of ideas that you're working off of? How do you make sure that you are productive during that work block?
0: I mean, I really look forward to that kind of day. So for me, it feel, it's almost like a treat. It's like, hey, I'm going to take this day to do this and it's fun. So I, I, I might make it fun by like, you know, going to a coffee shop and getting a latte while I do it. Sometimes I sit in my home office too, uh, but I find it inspiring to go to other places. I mean, I have so many ideas of so things that I want to share. So that's usually not a challenge, but I will say that I use a tool called Typefully. And I, I, I it's it's basically a, a social media scheduler that lets you write threads easily for Twitter. And then you can also put a LinkedIn version together pretty easily. And so I, I keep ideas in there. Like I don't do it a lot but if there's something that I'm itching to write and I think oh I should write a thread about this but I don't have the time in that moment then I do throw the idea in there. So when I like when I came to do this day of content most recently I did have a ton of half baked ideas already in there that I just worked on. So I guess that's not like really a some big system that I have going but I do throw in ideas as they come to me so that when I have more time to flesh them out they're there.
1: Um, And something that I also just think you do a really good job of is, like, those behind-the-scene updates, that they're very relatable, but they're also have, like, very strong, like, key takeaways and action items. How do you figure out how much to share publicly behind the scenes without oversharing? Because I think you walk a really good line between just, like, being super transparent without going into oversharing territory.
0: Thanks. I do sometimes second-guess myself, like, should I have shared that or you know, am I complaining too much lately that I haven't worked all summer because I've got my kids? (laughs) So I don't know. How much, how do I, well, I guess I, one thing I always remind myself when people ask me this is like, just because you're writing publicly doesn't mean you share everything. You still get to choose what you share and you still have a filter for deciding what you share. So I am pretty vulnerable or, and like transparent and open about writing about building a business, but That doesn't mean that I share absolutely everything. I also say like, I'm pretty comfortable sharing most everything (laughs) because I think it does help other people. um, And it helps build the brand because it brings people along for the ride. It gets them invested. Um, They learn that like, I'm a real person behind this brand and and that they can trust me. One thing I did think about really heavily before starting the They Got Acquired brand is I knew that I wanted to build this in a way that it could run without me. And so for the first couple of newsletters, I created um, a version that wasn't from me and was just, you know, showcased our content. And But then I kind of had an aha moment. I was like, you know what? People want to hear from a person. Like personally, I would much rather read a newsletter from a person than a brand. I don't really read any branded newsletters. I read newsletters from people. And um, I kind of realized that, first of all, to build a brand in the early days, it's got to be a person. And it has to come from me, and it's far more interesting. And also, it's more interesting for me that way because there's more I can share. But also, there can still be a plan where I can, I over time, I think I can, I can build that trust or like transfer that trust that people have in me into the brand. So like over time, in a few years from now, someone else could write the newsletter. And there's lots of other pieces of business other people can do as well. But I kind of realized that just because I want to build a business that runs without me doesn't mean that I can't have messages from me, especially in the early days. So that was a kind of uh, something I had to figure out for myself. And I feel like I have a nice balance there and, and a good plan. But yeah, it definitely takes a lot of trial and error.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Going back to something you said, where it was like the figuring out what to share publicly and having kind of that filter, can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on some of the questions or kind of the thought experiments that you're thinking about when it comes to you know, what, you know, what to share publicly versus what to maybe, you know, keep private.
0: Sure. One bar that I have for myself is, can I share a clear takeaway and a learning? Because like sometimes, and sometimes it requ- requires actually writing a post to figure out what that is. Like I'll have an idea or a theme and I can start writing it. And I don't know what the takeaway is until I get to the end. And then I realize what it is. And, you know, that's, that's helpful for my audience, but it's also really helpful for me, but sometimes I'll write and I don't have a clear takeaway. And by the time I'm done writing, I still don't have a clear takeaway. And I think those are the posts that can sound like complaining or um, just like they're not helpful to anybody. Right. So it's kind of, it's kind of weird because like build in public, the, the idea behind building public, by, by the way, I guess I guess I do build in public. I don't really think of it that way. I just, because I've done this since before that was a thing. I just consider it like sharing what I'm up to. <laughs> but like, yeah. So when you build in public, people are expecting you to kind of share what you're going through at that moment, which is really ironic because if you actually do that in its full entirety, it's really not helpful to the audience. Like I do believe in sharing as you're going through something, but if you don't have a takeaway as well, then it's not helpful. So it's kind of like walking that line between like, (laughs) how do you share what you're going through in this moment and like share what the questions are, but you also still have to have some takeaway or something that's, that makes what you're sharing uh, valuable to the people who are reading it. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. And that's so well said. Um, Yeah. I feel like, you know, when you're talking too much about like, there's like such a fine line between sharing in public and being transparent, but also like being still helpful versus, just kind of rambling on and on and on. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of gets into that oversharing territory that can be seen as not as helpful or even cringe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
1: Another point that you kind of mentioned a few minutes ago, which was about like, you know, kind of building a brand that is not as dependent on yourself. What are some of the processes that you put in from day one to make it so that, you know, you can really have your team take ownership your key basis
0: of mm-hmm. the business? Yeah. The first one is I just wouldn't build something that couldn't also be run by someone else. So I wanted to build a brand that can be run by someone else. Like It doesn't, it doesn't have to be me. And well, I mean, and the second thing is just like literally looking at the list of things and thinking, okay, how can we have, how can we create stuff that is, doesn't have to be done by me. So like for the newsletter, well, stepping back, we have a team of reporters that write the vast majority of the content for the site and also have an editor who edits it. And then someone else who puts like the bulk of the newsletter together for me. And then I do read the newsletter, edit it. And usually I add something to it and send it. So that part is still reliant on me. I like that doing that part. So I don't mind. <laughs> I think it could be handed over to someone eventually if I, someone else could do that. But I, I enjoy that. Um, and, But the, the reason I enjoy it is because I don't have to write a full newsletter. I don't have to write two newsletters every week, right? It comes to me with a story in it already that someone else reported and wrote. So that that gets me like 95% of the way there in terms of providing something that's valuable to people without me having to actually do it myself. I mean, we we've, we've talked about doing more training resources and workshops, but I really believe that like I don't want to build those around me personally, partly because and this is kind of a tough part of building this brand is like I'm not really an expert in selling businesses, right? I've done it twice. So I do understand the pain points of our target audience. And I i consider myself a founder who has who has these experiences, but I'm really not an expert in this. So like, oh, and over time in the last year and a half since launching the brand, I've become more of an expert in it. I, I know a lot more than I did when I first started it. But one of my goals in launching this brand and choosing this topic was like, I get to learn something new. I get to expand my own horizons and uh, push myself a little bit on like expanding my own skill set but that means for a lot of the things that we do i have to bring in true experts to be like the source on something so if we run a workshop for example i can give you know lots of high level advice on how to sell a business and in fact we have a short online course it's just an hour about how to sell a business that goes over all the things you should think about if you want to sell in the next couple of years and i i did that all myself it all comes from me because i know the high level stuff but if we're talking about like Valuing a business, I could explain to you how it's done, but I don't have the experience or skill set or tools to sit down and, and come up with a valuation for a business. Like someone else needs to do that who's an expert in that. So, part of building this brand is, is like I am forced to lean on other people who know what they're talking about when it comes to the specifics in this space and bringing them in to help our audience. So, I, I kind of consider myself like a bridge to those resources is figuring out what do founders need when they're either thinking about selling or they're building a business with the intent to sell later, what do they need? And how can I bring in the right people who can help them get it?
1: Absolutely. How do you bet and make sure that you are bringing in the right experts and the right trusted advisors in when you are leaning on them?
0: I mean, I talk to them. <laughs> I also typically talk to their the people they've worked with. So for example, often we refer founders to like an M&A advisor like if a founder wants to sell their business and they need help finding an advisor i can usually suggest someone that i think would be a fit and the only reason i would suggest someone is if i have talked to them myself about their experience <laughs> and talked to other people who have used them like who have worked with them already so like basically testimonials or recommendations for that person and then there's you know a lot of people have good reputations in this space too and once you kind of in the space, you know, who those people are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And especially for something as high stakes as selling a business, mm-hmm. which you probably are only going to do, let's face it. A founder is going to probably do that if, you, if they're lucky a few times mm-hmm. um, in their career. It is a high stake thing. So you want to mm-hmm. make sure you are getting those people properly. Yeah, for sure. Going back to kind of your team structure, what is your approach to hiring and finding the right talent? for key roles within
0: your business? Well, right now I have a model where I am the only person working full-time in this business. I have a team of contractors. I really like that model. Although I think in an ideal world, I would have maybe two kind of key employees and we're, we're working towards that. We need to increase revenue to be able to get to a point where we could do that. But how do I think about finding the right people? I mean, a lot of the people that we work with are reporters and writers. And my background is kind of in building that type of team. So usually the first thing I do, to be honest, well, the first thing I do is identify what our needs are. And I find like a lot of people, I have helped some other companies hire writers. And I find that the step is often skipped, which is like, what do you actually need? And can you drill down to the type of person and type of writer that you need to hire? Because too often people will say, I need to hire a writer. And it's like, well, that's not, specific enough. Like, do you need a landing page writer? Do you need someone who has a business background? Do you need someone to be able to do interviews? Like what is the background you need? So for this brand, for example, um, there's kind of a a trifecta that's actually kind of a unicorn trifecta. It's like hard to find people like this much harder than I realized going into it that it would be, but I look for people who have a, a business background. So they're going to understand, um, they don't have to have an M&A background because that's that's incredibly hard to find though i would love to find that person but as long as they understand business and aren't scared away by you know revenue numbers and multiples and ebitda and stuff like that then then they kind of check that box the second piece is um a journalism background because we attribute heavily since what we're writing about is a really sensitive topic it's really important to get it right because if you report incorrectly on You know, the numbers around somebody's acquisition, it can cause problems for a lot of different types of people. So we're really careful about what we report. And if we don't get information directly from the founder, which sometimes we can't because there's a lot of um, sensitivities around sharing details after you sell your business, then we will attribute really heavily to wherever we got that information from. So I need someone who's going to say, okay, I got this detail from X and I'm going to attribute to X in the story consistently. Um, And then the third piece is um, being able to write creatively. So sometimes you'll have like someone who has a background in journalism and they understand the concepts and all the ethics around it, but they can't write in a way that's like fun and interesting to read. So yeah, finding those three things um, has been really hard. But once I identify that those are the three things I needed, then I can use that as a lens every time I consider a new hire. And many of the people that I hire, I have worked with or trained before at other companies or while building other businesses, I really push myself to try and expand to new folks. And sometimes we find someone who's a fit, but certainly the easiest thing to do. And like, I think one advantage of having run other teams is that I do have a wide network of people who, who write and edit um, and do all kind of all the creative stuff. And like, you know, I think taking advantage of that helps me move faster.
1: Absolutely. And you kind of expect maybe hinted on this a little bit, but what were the most surprising things you learned when it came to building out kind of your team of reporters after they got acquired um, mm-hmm. that maybe have been different from other media brands that you have created and run against.
0: Well, this is an expensive space to create in because like that trifecta that I just mentioned, Business journalists who can write creatively, like it's expensive to hire those people, the people who are good. So that was one surprise, like even for me. And I've I've run a lot of teams and been in charge of a lot of budgets, and I didn't expect it to be as expensive as it as it ended up being to create the content. What else? Well, honestly, like I think I'd admit I'm 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 a little surprised that like every single story like is interesting and fascinating to me because you'd think that after a while, an acquisition, a story of a, of a founder selling their business would start to sound the same, but it really isn't like every single story is like interesting in its own way, has its own little quirks or challenges. And I just love seeing like what founders have built. And I also love seeing them get paid a lot of money for it (laughs) when they sell, but it's cool. Like to see these different businesses that people come up with, um, like for example, we covered a story of a woman the other day who sold a business where she, it was called Slides Carnival, and um, well, it was about design basically and designing slides. But what I loved about the, her model is like she got a ton, a ton of traffic, and instead of selling a product, which is kind of where my brain goes, she just put display advertising on the site, and she didn't even sell directly to sponsors because she had so much traffic, and she had, she had all these people coming to the site for this design content, she was able to monetize really well in a really simple way, which is just putting display ads on the site. And I just thought that was brilliant how she'd kept it so simple. And it was really small too. Like I love reading about the lean teams. So my whole kind of North star is big revenue, small team. (laughs) And I love reading about and learning about founders who have achieved that. And to me, she really, um, she really checked that box. So that was that was an interesting story. But they're all they're all so like they they all have a little bit of interesting piece to them or something that I can kind of grasp onto and learn from personally, which I enjoy.
1: Yeah, I love that. Going back a little bit more into your team, you've done something that I think quite frankly terrifies me. And I'm curious to hear how you've been managed to do this so well, which is hiring an editor pretty early on into their company. Into your company's existence and still maintain such a high quality bar. Can you talk through a little bit, like when you knew you were ready to hire an editor and how you were able to find that person and also keep the quality? So,
0: yeah, it is really hard, especially because I am an editor and that that's my core skill. And since hiring editors editors is expensive, I did wait a while with a new brand. Well, for two reasons. One is because since I could do it. I didn't have to pay someone else to do it. And that helped me keep my cost down since I'm bootstrapping. But secondly, we also had to figure out what the content even was for the new brand and like what it would sound like, how long it would be, what would it include? Like there's so many different elements you have to figure out when you're creating content from scratch. And I wanted to have that really nailed down before I brought brought someone else in so that they had a model to follow. I mean, you can, you certainly could hire an editor to figure that out for you. Um, but I went to do that myself. And so when I felt like we had that nailed down and when I felt like I could afford it, that's when I brought someone in. I mean, it was, a, it did feel like a stretch, um, on the money side, but the way I justified it to myself is like, by bringing this person in to do the editing, it's going to free me up so much, so much of my just brain space and energy and time that I can then put that into other revenue generating activities for the business. And like, I personally was finding it challenging at that point to swap between like editing story, like editing stories, which is really detail oriented. You have to get really into that particular story and then like come back out of that and do more of the business development stuff. Like I I was having a hard time swapping between those two things. And so I do have an editor, but. First of all, I hired an editor who I'd worked with before, like, like, um, worked with heavily before I've worked with him. He reported to me at another company. So where I worked full-time and he worked full-time. So it was a really easy transition. And I, I already knew I love this person. Like you like working with them. I know that they're great at what they do. I know that we communicate well. So that, that was really, um, fortunate because it made, it made it that much easier, but I still haven't completely handed over the whole editing ship to him, which I would like to do, but I'm not there yet in terms of I need to be able to pay this person more um, to do that. So like he still he does all of the um, nitty gritty edits on the stories, but I'm still managing on the front end. I'm assigning the stories because I'm deciding what we need to write about and assign it and then scheduling it on the back end. But he's doing like all the nitty gritty stuff. So that was kind of like the the happy middle ground that I could find where like I could I could afford it makes a big difference for the business. It makes a big difference for me personally, but to do that, I still had to hold on to a few of, of the pieces.
1: Really? Um, and it sounds like a key piece of that was someone who you already had a lot of trust in because you'd worked with in the past. But let's say someone is trying to hire an editor and maybe doesn't already have that existing relationship and place. What are some of those key skill sets and those key traits um, that they should look for?
0: Well, I think of there being as two different types of editors in my brain (laughs) Um, for for like websites. I mean, there's lots of different types of editors, but there is an editor who's like really good at the getting in there with their hands and like fixing the copy and being like a nitty gritty editor. And then there's an editor who's like really good with people and managing teams and managing the people and keeping them um, going in the right direction. And sometimes you'll have somebody who has both of those skill sets but more often I find the first variation where like they're nitty gritty with the copy. They're more of like an individual contributor, whereas the other person's like a manager. And so I think asking yourself like, which of those two things do I need Uh, and where should I put my focus and like looking for the person who has that experience. I'd also do um, a test run. So, and more than one, like one test piece is not enough to, to identify whether you can work with a writer or an editor over the long run. I would set an expectation where there's like a certain trial period where we both get to figure out, Hey, is this something that's going to work for both of us? And then you can really see um, what that person's work is like and what they are like to work with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And going back to working with and hiring reporters, so not even as editors, um, do you have an example of a time where you worked with a reporter who, you know, thought was going to be a great fit, but ended up not working out? and were there any kind of red flags that you missed in the beginning
0: yeah all the time that happens <laughs> i mean um, uh, once one specific example that sticks out in my mind is when i hired someone who had all these really impressive bylines like she had something like you know the forbes of the world and ink and um i think i let that color my thinking on what she could do i i just assumed like okay someone has all those bylines their work's going to come to me really clean and it was just really not up to the standard that I was expecting, which is why um, I always recommend doing like a trial period so that you can see what the person's work is actually like, because any writer is going to have the gift of an editor stepping in to make their copy shine. Like that's an editor's job. You want that, and that doesn't mean the writer's not good. Like any, a great writer will be able to work really well with an editor. So they work together to make that happen. But that means that when you're looking at a a bylined piece, it's really, usually it's not just the work of the writer alone. And, and so you want to get a better sense of like what they're going to, what they're going to hand to you um, from the get-go. Like what does their raw copy look like? And then secondly, how well can they adjust to your, the style that you've set out? So like, usually the first time I work with a writer, I, yes, that first piece might be an indication of whether or not they're a fit, like it might nix them out automatically. But what happens more often is it's like a maybe. And then I look at the second and third one after I've given them feedback and see what those look like. And if they were able to significantly do what I asked, basically make the changes in the way that I asked. And then the next time they do that without me having to ask, like, if you see that improvement to me, that's, that's the sign of somebody who's going to be a good fit.
1: Absolutely. And what are some of the reasons that you put in place to set your reporters up uh, for success?
0: Well, I try to put systems in place. Um, little things, for example, you know, whenever someone writes for us, they get a doc that says, like, here's that invoice us, just simple things so that we can get running, off and running quickly. We have a few tools that we use that we get people into that hopefully make it easier to work together. And I think just like setting expectations from the beginning is like, here's how long this needs to be. We have a checklist of all the details that we'd like to get in every story. They're not always required, but then at least you can see kind of what the editor is looking for. So yeah, I think it's more mostly about expectations and having things written down also. So like the reporter can help themselves. If they, if they have a question they can look in the documentation and figure it out rather than waiting for me to answer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, documentation is so key. When, like, you have to balance so many deep work tasks, whether it's you know doing kind of final edits, um, writing some of the content, marketing, with also kind of leading um, your team of contractors. How do you think about kind of synchronous meetings and calls versus asynchronous work activities?
0: We almost do nothing live. Um, like I, I do some live calls because I talk to like people who could be sponsors for us or partners for the brand, but I almost never do live calls with the actual team. We communicate primarily via ClickUp, so we have tasks, and all the communication goes into the task that it's referring to. And then um, we also use uh, WhatsApp Voice. So like right now I was trying to iron something out with um our operations lead and he and I were going back and forth on, um on WhatsApp leaving voice messages for each other. And like it, this, to, what we were talking about today was kind of an issue that also could maybe require a live call. And I said to him, Hey, if you want to have a call about this, let me know. But you know, if you're comfortable doing it this way, that's fine with me too. So that, that kind of, I feel like ha- having that voice um element helps, first of all explain things like I turn to that when I want to explain something that's like hard to write out or if there's something that I want to be more collaborative or like I want to explain how I'm feeling about something or give feedback that's like better done over voice than um, via text um but those are the two main ways that that we connect in the past I've had I've had like a slack channel or, something like slack where everyone's in there and can chat to each other or even like the occasional meeting where everyone comes together but i found that for the group of contractors i'm working with now like they just don't really want to do that like they're they're all my editor and and my operations lead are the two people who are most heavily invested in what i'm building um because they're spending the most hours on what we're working on but most of our reporters are just doing a post or two a month um, and they have a lot of other clients where they have a full-time job or they're doing this on the side. So they all really appreciate the async and they don't really want to have a meeting. But I also always let people know, like, if you want to talk about something live, we can do that. Like that's certainly an option. It's like, you can't do it, but the default doesn't have to be that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I could talk about kind of async working and meeting for a while, but I do want to get to a couple of like in round questions before we wrap. Mm-hmm. If, you could have coffee with any historical figure who would you choose and why
0: i'd probably choose somebody in my family (laughs) um i'm not really like wooed by celebrities or i don't know i think from being a journalist you start to realize like everybody's just a regular person (laughs) but some of them have a lot more visibility than others so the people who are most interesting to me would be like someone like you know my great-grandfather or you know people who have been part of my family um, in years past.
1: And what's like kind of the main question you'd want to ask them?
0: Hmm, I think I just want to find out who they are, you know, what their lived experience was like and what they found to be the most meaningful parts of their life.
1: Absolutely. And if you were tasked with teaching a one-hour lecture on any subject of your choice, but it can't be about entrepreneurship, buying or selling businesses or writing what would you lecture on
0: <laughs> maybe hiking i do a lot of hiking um we live in a town that has really accessible hiking and i'm part of a group here that builds new trails in town um which has been really meaningful personally and like one of the reasons why i love working for myself is i can make time to do that kind of thing so because it's been a priority I've gotten to learn trail building techniques and a lot about the trails in this area. So I suppose that's something that I could talk about that's outside of um, work, but really like, you know, I, I have my work, I have my family, I have two kids and I try to get some exercise outside. And that's, that's kind of the things that I focus on.
1: Keep it simple. Um, And if you could send a message to yourself ten years in the future, what would you tell yourself?
0: Hmm. I mean, the thing that I always think about and I often write about is, like, how do I balance this clear ambition to have, like, professional meaning and make, make a dent in, like, professionally with being here for my family, my kids specifically, when they need me. Did you ask me to send a message to my future self or back to my (laughs) my future self? Yeah. So like Um, fast
1: forward 10 years, we're now in 2033. Uh, What's the message you would tell yourself?
0: I mean, I like the you are enough messaging. Like you are enough. You've done enough. And you know, what you've achieved is enough. And hopefully you can rest and have more joy and more fun.
1: Yeah, I love that. And it's been amazing chatting with you on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Lexi. Where can listeners find you online?
0: I am at They Got Acquired. If you want to join our newsletter, it's theygotacquired.com slash newsletter. And I'm also on LinkedIn or Twitter under Alexis Grant.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Yes, yeah, it's was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site theremoteworkdrive.com to learn more about remote work trends and insights.